Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you for joining us today for our first National Security Institute Silverado Policy Accelerator debate. I'm Jessica Jones, Deputy Director here at the National Security Institute, and I'm going to help guide us through today. So a little bit about our, our hosts, um, NSI is dedicated to incorporating a realistic assessment of the threats facing the United States and finding and delivering actionable recommendations to policymakers. We're excited to partner today with Silverado Policy Accelerator, a new bipartisan nonprofit that applies a venture approach to policymaking. It incubates and accelerates the adoption of bold ideas and that solve critical policy challenges. So our first debate with Silverado. Some of today's biggest threats facing the United States and like-minded democracies arise in the cyber domain. Right now, a debate rages in the policy community over what strategies best protect cyber interests. And today we put those strategies before you guys, the audience. So for the today's debate, the motion on the table is the best form of defense in cyber is defense. We've got two teams today. The first to argue in the affirmative and on the side of cyber defense, we've got Kieran Martin and Heather Adkins. Kieran Martin is the former CEO of the UK's National Cybersecurity Center, which provides advice and support for the public and private sector on how to avoid computer security threats. Prior to running NCSC, Kieran held a series of senior roles in the UK's cabinet office, including director of security and intelligence. He's also currently now a professor at the University of Oxford and brings a distinguished British um, <laughs> dialect to the conversation. Heather Adkins is the Director for Information Security and Privacy at Google. She is a 16-year veteran at Google and a founding member of the Google security team. Um, she's built a global team responsible for maintaining the security and safety of Google's networks, systems, and applications. She's also part of the Defending Digital Democracy Project at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. Now, to argue in opposition to the motion on the side of cyber offense, we've got Dmitry Oparovich and Janil Jaffer. Um, Dimitri is co-founder and chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Accelerator, and he is co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike. He's also currently a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School Belfer Center's digital, Defending Digital Democracy Project as well, and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He is also on the NSI advisory board. Thank you. Uh, last and certainly not least, we have my boss, Jamil Jaffer, who is the founder and executive director of NSI. He's also an assistant professor of law and director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He's affiliated with Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation and was previously a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. So thanks to all of our debaters for joining us. Um, some distinguished uh, bios there. Okay, today's debate. So I just wanna go over with the audience really quickly the event format. It's based loosely off the Oxford debate style. So we're gonna kick off the debate uh, today with an audience vote on where you stand on today's motion. And then we're gonna go into opening arguments, a rebuttal section. And then important for you guys, we're also gonna have time for Q&A from the audience. So please submit your questions in the Q&A function, which is at the bottom of your screen. Don't hesitate and wait to do it later in the program. There's a whole bunch of you, so get them in when you think of them, please. After that, we're gonna to go to closing arguments and then a final vote to see if our teams have swayed your mind in any direction. Okay. So with that, we're gonna to go to our first vote of the day. So please, you should see a poll pop up asking you where you stand on the motion. Again, the motion is the best form of defense in cyber is defense. Oh, we don't get to vote. That's unfortunate. <laughs> we need the Jeopardy music. Yeah, we do. There was a choice. We could have let you vote, but we, we wanted to keep it honest and transparent here. 
<laughs> and I can hum the Jeopardy theme song, but you, nobody wants that. I knew that was going to come up, by the way. I, I didn't want to offer that. Um, seconds. Grant, when you think you've got a good mask, feel free to close it out. All right. Hopefully you guys can all see this. It seems like the winning, the winning side so far is the in agreement with the motion that defense is the best. So let's see what happens after today's event. Okay. So first up, we've got an opening argument. We have Heather um, on the side of the affirmative um, in cyber defense. Thanks, Jessica. So for the past few weeks, our opposition in this debate has been waging a preemptive strike, a war for your hearts and minds on Twitter, trying to influence your vote. They've been throwing this quote around that offense is the best defense. And this axiom might have been true for someone like General George Washington, commander in chief of the Continental Army. He's often associated with such a quote. But we have to remember that Washington lived in a world with hills and farms and rivers and forests. If he gained a position on the battlefield, it was exclusively his. He could deny it to his adversary. But that's not how the internet works. Information can be copied, servers duplicated, Adversaries can easily move between Amsterdam and Indonesia. In fact, multiple adversaries can occupy the same battle position in cyberspace, sometimes without even knowing the other is there. If you take their Bitcoins, they can mine some more. Seizing ground on the internet does not guarantee that you've removed it from the adversary's hands. It doesn't necessarily deny it. So when offensive says they're doing a good job, they're not actually as effective as they'd like to think. Let's also consider that when Washington crossed the Delaware River, he gained Trenton, New Jersey, but he knew that he could only keep it if he had a good defense. Defense is necessary. Indeed, when the offense is firing their cyber weapons into cyberspace against their cyber targets, having practiced it in their cyber range, who's manning the walls at home? It's defense. And when doing so, defense has immense freedom to act. As a defender, I don't need to go through an equities process to put a firewall on my network. I don't need a judge to approve my use of two-factor authentication to prevent phishing every time I want to prevent phishing. I have many solutions at my disposal. I can use one, I can use a hundred, I can layer them. I can reuse them without degrading their effectiveness. And really good solutions don't need to be a secret from my adversary. We can share tactics. We can defend each other on the internet. We can help one another. And not only is this acceptable, it's expected. In short, defense is the norm. It's what people expect. It's flexible, it's continuous, it's ongoing. We have immense freedom to act with one exception the use of offense for defense. If we take a narrow definition that offense means things like hacking first, hacking back, or hacking to take down, these are not options available to organizations that operate within the law. And it's ill-defined what norms exist for everyone else. Finally, on the shores of the new world, Washington had but a few adversaries, the British, the Hessians, and so on but we have thousands on the internet. I think sometimes we forget just how complicated this space is. 
So we can't just be talking about the US. We can't just be talking about the governments. There are billions of people who are increasingly connected with one another in this digital space. And we rely on international partners and service and information providers. And imagine what chaos would ensue if offensive techniques were regularly deployed on the internet for the purpose of defense. We'd be astounded by the fragility of the internet. Bandwidth would be consumed, servers would go offline, our banks would be unavailable, user trust would be undermined. We'd start to doubt the information we see and we would wonder if we're safe. And our defensive teams would be absolutely exhausted from a constant onslaught of uncontrolled escalations. But come to think of it, it does actually sound a little familiar. Maybe we're already in the middle of this escalation. So as the offense defends their position today, consider this pivotal question. Can you think of a time when offensive capability, a vulnerability and exploit a technique, not only failed to stop the adversaries in the larger sense, but in fact emboldened them, inspired them, enabled them? And did they take that capability and use it against us? And if you can think of a time that they did that, you have to really wonder if offense is the best defense. Thank you. All right, 15 seconds to spare. Okay, Dimitri taking on the side, the opposition side, arguing on the side of cyber offense. I'll bank those 15 seconds. <laughs> Let me start first with what this debate is really about. The motion we're debating here is whether the best form of defense in cyber is defense. This debate is not about whether we should do defense or offense. It is about whether we should only do defense, the position that my esteemed colleagues are arguing for, or as Jamil and I believe, we should play American football and field both offense and defense teams on the field. Just like in American football games, they typically are not one without quarterbacks, or in fact, military conflicts triumph via the strategy of unilateral disarmament. We believe we should behave smartly and leverage both sets of capabilities. We absolutely have to invest in defense. We wholeheartedly agree with our friends, Heather and Kieran on that point. We need to invest more, we need to build up capacity, both in people and technology, to do a better job of protecting our networks and our people. That's not a debate uh, here. But let's face also with the reality. There are 137 executive agencies in the US government alone. There are over 32 million businesses in the US and 320 million people. We will never reach the capacity to defend each and every single one of them against some of the most sophisticated threat actors that may target them. It is a pipe dream. We should strive for that and work hard to protect our most valuable targets in government and industry, but relying on an exclusive strategy of protecting everyone in this country to the highest degree possible is not just a mistake, but an irresponsible and unrealistic dream. In fact, it's the very strategy we have engaged in for the last 25 plus years across multiple administrations. We've invested hundreds of billions of dollars of government funds, in addition to the many billions of dollars of private venture funding in defensive capabilities. And what do we have to show for it? The attacks have only gotten more devastating and more widespread. And we do not have enough resources as a country to protect everyone to the highest degree possible, especially given that we are already $27 trillion in debt. So therefore, in addition to fielding the best defense we, uh, we possibly can, we argue that we should also invest in offense. And I wanna make two critical points about offense. One, when we talk about offense, we do not mean purely cyber offense. In fact, we believe that cyber offense is by far the least effective tool in our national power tool chest. 
And the reason we want to use full-spectrum offense is twofold. One, to increase our level of deterrence and dissuade adversaries from launching highly impactful attacks against us, but also appreciating that we will not be able to deter everything. We also argue that we should use offense to increase the cost of the operations to our adversaries, make it harder for them to execute the multitude of attacks they're able to do now, and even in some cases use the offense to corral them into areas of cyberspace where we have an intelligence collection advantage over them, and that can give us advanced insights into what they're planning to do. Let me take these one at a time. First, deterrence. The idea that deterrence does not apply to cyberspace is laughably wrong. The proof that it works is self-evident in that we have not seen the type of truly economically devastating cyber attacks that would take down our electric grid, shut down our water supplies, or destroy our financial sector. There is zero doubt that our most advanced adversaries, Russia and China, have the capability to execute such attacks, uh, such attacks and have had it for years. But the fact that they haven't pulled the trigger on them is proof positive that deterrence works. They know that they would face overwhelming retaliation and not in cyber to attack such as this. So the question is not whether deterrence works or not. The question is how do we lower the threshold for deterrence so that we can also deter some extremely impactful attacks against our nation that do not rise to the level of being an act of war. Attacks such as interference in our election process, for example, or the massive economic espionage that China has been conducting against our country for the last two decades. We believe we can and should deter those actions not through some magical cyber offensive pixie dust, but through the use of soft and hard power national security tools such as tariffs, sanctions, law enforcement action against individual operatives and companies that may facilitate operations or companies that benefit from stolen IP, economic retaliation against industries and sectors of our adversaries, encouraging and supporting their domestic dissidents, and providing military aid to neighboring countries that may have an adversarial relationship with our main threat actor. Um, and potentially even to include military force repositioning to the region. Which of these options we choose will be highly dependent on the actor, threat, and operation they execute, but all should be on the table to increase our deterrence. Second, cyber offense. We are not arguing that cyber offense alone is going to be effective in increased deterrence, but it is still important to execute offensive actions to take down adversary command and control servers, use treasury authorities to take down their payment system systems that they use to procure domains, and hosting infrastructure, and generally make life difficult for their operatives to continue executing operation against us. We are under no illusions that this will have a substantial deterrent effect. After all, deterrence is useful when it's targeted leadership and not individual so soldiers who are just following orders, but it will slow them down, make it more difficult for them to execute operations at scale and volume that they do today, and potentially even let us improve intelligence collection so that we can be more proactive at blocking their attacks. To summarize, we do not believe that building a cyber equivalent of imaginal line around every single government agency, 30 million plus businesses in this country, and 320 million individuals will be effective, affordable, or even realistic. Yes, let's invest in defense, but also let's be smart and practice offense where appropriate. Let's use offensive tools, mostly non-cyber, to increase the turns. Okay, Dimitri. <laughs> and uh, that's how great, great football teams balls, <laughs> and that's the only path forward for our nation. Thank you. He, he did take your 15 sec seconds, Heather. He wasn't, he wasn't joking about that one. <laughs> we gave you that. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that, Dimitri and Heather. Okay. On to rebuttal sections. We are going to start with you, Kieran, um, on the side of the affirmative arguing for cyber defense. 
Dimitri, you set these really strict norms for the debate and then you trashed through them. I mean, what better illustration of the case for offence could you have possibly made, even if just behaviour? Look, first of all, thanks to uh, opponents for organising this debate. And I genuinely mean this because, frankly, it's something that our governments need to do more of. And for reasons that I don't quite understand, uh, they're not airing uh, these um, uh, discussions. So thank you for responding to my incendiary call for a better defence with a C on Twitter and uh, and, and, and arranging this. Um, bit in tre- trepidation about the vote because my last job before cyber I worked on the Scottish independence referendum and the polls started out in exactly that place with a two to one majority in my favour and when the vote came it was pretty much knife edge but look you've done the classic thing Dimitri I mean great arguments but first of all you've put an argument to me and have uh, and you've put words in me and Heather's mice that aren't coming out of them which is that we're not saying there should be no uh, cyber offence at all Um, that's not we're not arguing for unilateral disargument and secondly as you know because I wrote an article and uh, sent it to you uh, within the past week I think that non-cyber offensive responses which can be quite aggressive including sanctions and attributions and so forth um, and indictments in particular can be can be very effective and I'm not arguing against those what I am arguing is not being beguiled by the false comfort of a of, a, of an invisible secret digital battlefield. I am arguing against tooling up with cyber weapons for the purposes of cyber defense, thinking that that um, is what works. Because what I want to get across, I mean, until the vote, um, and then remember it, you know, even if you forget how there's magnificent principled arguments about why uh, defense works better, what we're debating today is does cyber offense work for cyber defense? Does cyber offense work for cyber defense? And the answer to that is a proven no. There are two arguments, and you've made one of them, um, one of which is what I call the sort of 1980s Western European Communist Party argument. It hasn't been properly tried yet, a bit like what Western European communists used to say, well, communism would work, but the Soviets haven't tried it and the Eastern Bloc haven't tried it, right? We have tried it. And it has not demonstrably uh, deterred um, um, adversaries. And um, we, we, we know this now because, I mean, you look at um, solar winds and it gives us no realistic um, options. The second argument as well, you know, it, it is working, but it's just too secret to tell you. Now, that's not an argument you made, but you often hear it. That's the sort of military industrial complex uh, throughout the ages argument. And the fact is when cyber offense does work, um, certainly in the UK, ministers tell you about it. And in America, from my reading, the Washington Post tends to find out about it. So we would know if cyber offense worked by now. And the fact is, never mind the sort of efficacy, the ethics and all the great arguments that Heather made, we've been trying cyber offense for cyber defense for a very long time and it just hasn't proven effective as a deterrent or something that militates against it thank you awesome thank you okay on to you jamil you've got three minutes great thanks so much uh, and thanks to karen and heather and dimitri for uh, for being part of this debate look i want to start with the, a key proposition that dimitri mentioned uh, but that our opponents really have responded to right which is that we've actually been practicing the Heather and Kieran position for the past three decades. We're doing primarily defense only. And where has it gotten us? Fundamentally, we, we are in a consistent state of low-level warfare when it comes to cyberspace. And we're losing. Our opponents have had their way with us for far too long. Whether you want to talk about Chinese theft of intellectual property and the massive damage it's caused our economy, our Western economies for decades, right? Or you want to talk about what the Russians have done when it comes to uh, trying to influence our elections and our, and our body politics. But the real reason that we haven't succeeded is because we've been unwilling to extract significant costs for enemies, whether the use of offensive capabilities to impose costs on the back end of an operation, or as Dimitri has said, to raise the ongoing cost of an operation as is underway, right? And look, the thing about it is 
this is both like American football, but it's also like soccer. When you're on the battlefield, right, you're both playing offense and defense at the same time. And how do you keep the offense from succeeding, from scoring goals on you? Well, you go try to steal the ball from them and you score on their goal. Then they get on the defense. And that's how you can be most effective, right? So it's not that you have to pick one or the other. You've got to do both. And this idea that, that you know, Kieran has laid out for us that, well, you know, it's not, it's not that, we, that they're arguing just for pure defense, that they need offense too. Great. Well, let's do that. Let's go offensive and let's, let's not just do it in cyberspace. Let's do it across the board. It's not, offense doesn't have to be limited. This theory that we have to operate only in cyberspace to respond to cyberspace activities is not the reality. Imagine if all Manchester United played, did was play defense, right? Not only would they never win a game, they'd lose the game by more rather than if they'd play that combined offense defense capability. So the fact of the matter is that you can't just play defense. And if you're going to play offense, you got to play offense to win. If you play offense to win, not only will you keep the opponent's score down, you'll score more and you'll win. And that's what this is fundamentally about, right? We've tried defense. We've tried primarily defense and we've lost the game as a result. We got to stop losing. If you're going to win this battle, you got to go on offense. You got to keep it sustained. And lastly, to Heather's point that, well, well, we'll end up in this hugely escalatory scenario, right? If we both go on the offense side, the fact of the matter is that if you look at the history of human events, right, it's never defense that's won a war. It's always been offense. It's never defense that even stopped a war. It's only when both sides have significant offensive capabilities, are willing to use them, and have made clear what circumstances they'll be used under that people don't go to war. It's when there's a miscalculation and an expectation that somebody can win as a better offense that we end up going into wars, it's defense only or defense primarily that's escalatory, not offense. Wow, I'm shocked that he did not run over. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so Heather, you're up in response. Thank you. Uh, well, first off, thank you to everyone for putting this together. It, it's really a delight to, to have this debate out in the open and, and to discuss these issues. But let me reject the football analogy because football is a game played in a confined set of time where the points that you win are clearly defined. In the analogy that we're making for cyber offensive capability, there's really no rules and there's no confined set of time. Even when we think about traditional military warfare, and you know, I'm not a military historian or an expert, but it's obvious even to me that the reason, for example, that the allies won World War II is that we escalated the offense to the point where there was immense casualty. And it was a very sad state. Is that where we're going with this cyber offensive space, given that it's not time bound and we don't know how to score points? Are we just going to end up escalating to the point where we have some catastrophe and then everybody pulls back? I worry about that. And I, I worry about these analogies to war for that perspective. The other thing I want to touch on is what Dimitri said, and that our attack surface as defenders is very complex. It's hard to defend. He makes the defeatist statement that we can't defend everyone, but he fails to miss the, the logic problem in his argument in that we have to defend everyone anyway, even if you're using offense, because the reality is that our attack surface, if left undefended from a defense perspective, offense isn't going to fix that. As Karen's pointed out, deterrence doesn't work. So what have we done in the last three decades, as Jamil has asked? I would say we've done a lot. We have raised the barriers on defense quite a bit. We have solutions 
that we know are making more defensible infrastructure. And these technologies, we need to continue to innovate them. We need to put our resources, our time, our energy, and our excitement behind this because it's something we have to do anyway, even if we do use offensive capabilities once in a while. But I would say to those hawks who want to use offensive capabilities, just be careful where you think that escalation is going because there's no whistle at the end of this game that makes everybody stop. Great. Thank you, Dimitri. Let me just address this escalatory point because it's been brought up a lot and Heather just brought this up now that if we engage in offense, things will only get worse because our adversaries will be free to execute all kinds of sophisticated attacks. Well, if you believe that, you have not been paying any attention to the last 10 years. Look at attacks like NAPETIA, WannaCry, attacks launched with reckless abandon by our adversaries that have caused billions of dollars in damage and have only gotten worse and worse over time. Our adversaries are feeling unconstrained, not because we're engaging in some moderate level of offense, but because they feel like there are no costs to what they're doing. And we have not held them to account either in the physical world and, and, and certainly not in cyberspace. Um, and we certainly argue, Jamil and I, that we should be doing more to hold them to account in the physical world where we have the most leverage to impact the thinking of their leadership versus the individual operatives who are just following orders. So this idea that just doing more offense is going to escalate things is uh, provably false. Things have been escalating without us doing much of offense for the last 10 years uh, already. And um, uh, simply us getting into the fight is actually going to get our adversaries to stop appreciating our capabilities and start to fear us, which they clearly do not do today. With regards to um, the idea of protecting everyone, again, we are not arguing against defense. We wholeheartedly agree with Karen and Heather that more defense is unquestionably good. We should be doing more of it. We should be doing it more smartly. We should be investing in hunting methodologies that focus on assuming a breach and, and hunting for adversaries and kicking them out. But the landscape that we have to protect is simply too big. Too many companies, too many businesses that will never have enough money to invest in protection, too many consumers that are not educated about the risks online. And yes, we can do more, but we'll never achieve perfection. And for us to really level the playing field, we need to make it harder for the, our adversaries to launch their attacks. We absolutely have to go after their infrastructure. Procuring covert infrastructure is really, really hard. And if we go after their payment mechanisms, if we do things like um, the executive order that was published this week of demanding KYC on cloud customers, um, that uh, makes it um, harder for, for them to procure infrastructure in the US. As we saw in SolarWinds, the fact that they use infrastructure exclusively uh, across US cloud providers made it very, very difficult for the US intelligence community to actually see this attack coming. So doing things like that that make it harder for them to operate and uh, at the same time make it easier for us to uncover their um, operations is what's going to make a difference for us on, on the defensive side. So yes, we want more defense, but we, we also want offense to help defense. And it's clearly possible. Great. Thank you. And Kieran, you're up on the side of the affirmative for cyber defense. Thanks. Um, really good debate. Let me pick up where Heather left off by rejecting sporting analogies. I'm not going to go for an American football analogy because I don't understand it apart from the fact you don't kick very much. I'll deal briefly with soccer analogies, not least because Manchester United suffered a ransomware attack earlier this season due to uh, weak defences. And as any 
Manchester United supporter as I am, will tell you that their 20-year supremacy came to an end for seven years when they failed to replace the de- defensive titanic duo of Ferdinand and Vittage. Um, as, as all successful Manchester United uh, teams of that 20-year period have been based on elite uh, defence. I think also one argument commonly made on your side, but more in political leaderships are all than experts like yourselves, to be fair, is more akin to a boxing ring, that cyber is an enclosed domain. And I've heard this so many times from politicians, including in the US, but you hear it and you've seen some of it in SolarWinds, but you hear it all the time in the UK. We've been hit in cyberspace, so we will hit back hard and we have to have these offensive um, and we have to have these offensive capabilities. So I don't disagree, as I've already said, um, about things like sanctions and diplomatic retributions. My challenge to, to your side of the argument is take something like SolarWinds or even Sony, because SolarWinds is espionage and Sony's not. And just think through what is the offensive toolkit that's of any use. You can be as escalatory as you want, because I've got some sympathy with Jamil's argument that sometimes when you escalate things, that um, it, it, it can work out. It, it can work out fine. But cyber offense just has no history of doing that usefully. And we have been trying it. I don't. I'm not going to accept this. Oh, we've been trying defense for ages and we haven't tried offense properly. We have tried offense properly. I signed an affidavit in a British court in 2015 in response to a Snowden legal challenge pointing out that the UK Parliament enabled it under statute in 1994. We have been trying this. So we've rejected sporting analogies. This isn't sport. It's not war. We know it's not war. Um, it is attritional competition through foul uh, rules. Um, you know, no one has been um, killed by cyber attacks. Solar winds is not uh, an act of war. And something we need to come on to, it's not just not war, it's real life. It's our everyday experience of economic, social activity. It's an environment. It's where we live and do so much. And if we just convert this into some covert digital battlefield, that's the wrong answer. We need to build on the sort of improvements that Heather has been talking about and not poison the environment further. Thanks. Great. And then Jamil, last to speak in this rebuttal section. Well, look, this is great. I mean, we've now found something that Kieran and I can agree on, which is he's exactly right. Cyberspace is not a closed battlefield. And in fact, it is just like the real world. It's where we operate. It's where we work. Guess what? In, the, in war, we don't bomb places where nobody is. People bomb cities. People bomb factories. People attack troop, troop formations, right? It's the same thing in cyberspace. War and conflict takes place in the real world and has an effect when it affects real people. The same is true in cyberspace. And the fact of the matter is that we are losing that battle today, right? It may be a low level battle. It may not rise to the level of acts of war every day, but we are getting our breakfast eaten, our lunch eaten, our dinner eaten every day. Intellectual property is walking out the back door. Damage is increasing, right? If we're getting so much better, as Heather says, well, why, why is the threat growing? Why, as Dimitri points out, are the costs of cyber activities by our opponents getting higher and higher and worse and worse for our economy, right? It's simple. It's because we haven't actually done what, what Kieran says we have. Sure, no doubt we've engaged in some level of activities. And great, the British Parliament authorized it back in the 90s. The US government has made clear that we've authorized it by statute in 2018, and we know that we've been doing it before that. But let's talk about what we've actually done in this space, right? 2018, we hear about the Russians potentially trying to get involved in our elections. We've now learned that the U.S. government engaged in an offensive response in cyberspace to the Internet Research Agency. 
We get a DDoS attack. I'm sorry. The 19 is called and wants its cyber offense back. If we're really doing cyber offense, that ain't it because that isn't imposing any costs. If we're going to engage, whether it's cyber offense or another form of offense, which Kieran purports to be supportive of, well, great. Let's extract real costs, right? So Dimitri and I are not arguing for an offense that doesn't extract costs or frankly, an offense that's done behind closed doors. We actually advocate for an offense that extracts real pain from leadership and that is done in public. After all, the bully who gets, who, who's, who's harassing the little kid, he's not cowed by that little kid going to tell the teacher about it and being called to the principal's office and his parents might get called in. He's cowed when that little kid punches him back in the face and bloodies his nose in front of all the other third graders. And the same is true in cyberspace. Until we're ready to punch back and extract costs, it's no shock that the scoreboard is them 50, us three. All right, thank you. Okay, so we have gotten <laughs> basically ongoing dialogue in the Q&A box at times. So there's a lot of comments and questions that we've been trying to filter through on our side. We're gonna get to as much as we can. Um, we're not gonna get to everyone, but let's get started. So I'm gonna try to direct questions as much as I can um, to sides, some to, to both teams, but we're gonna start a question for um, the cyber defense folks. Does the solar winds attack show that deterrence isn't effective or that it is impossible to defend from all supply chain attacks. Yeah, I can uh, I can start there. I, I think the solar winds example is 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 an extraordinary example of of you know proof that these these attacks are so easy to do. I, I don't know that if you went on the offensive at any point in in human history before today that you could have prevented the solar winds attack using an offensive deterrence of any kind. The fact of the matter is that the target set is a very legitimate target set. And regardless of whether they're using traditional spying techniques or techniques using the digital realm, the fact of the matter is these targets are going to get spied on. And there's no history of offense that has ever deterred espionage. Right? And I can think all the way back to you know the Trojan War for some examples. But I do think that on the defense side, the solar winds attack is very interesting because we see so many opportunities. These events are always scary and a little bit, you know, they, they run your adrenaline up. But as defenders, we can look at each of the parts of that attack and I can see opportunities for how we can just completely eliminate the weaknesses there. When you talk about defending at scale, we can defend at scale when we build common solutions that people can easily use and people can easily adopt. And we see this. We, this is why people love adopting the cloud, is that they are common solutions that are easy to adopt. So really, the answer here is to invest our energy and excitement into making sure that whether you're one person with uh, a single business or a small to medium business or even the size of the U.S. government, that you have the building blocks for solutions that mean you can defend yourself, maybe even without even knowing it. Great. Thank you. And then a question for the offense. The offense side talks of winning a war, but what exactly does that mean to win in this context? By, by the way, let me just start with, with the previous question on solar winds. Completely okay. agree, solar winds was espionage, and this is not something that's a deterrable activity. But by the way, when Heather talks about scaling this and using the cloud, uh, even though we uh, mistakenly call this a solar winds hack, we now know that a vast majority, uh, not vast majority, but a, a huge number of the victims were compromised when they were not solar winds customers, and for, precisely because we're using the cloud, not the Google cloud, but another vendor's cloud. Um, so let, let's not kid ourselves that this was um, 
something that uh, the cloud was helpful with. Uh, I agree with Heather actually that cloud makes a lot of things um, um, better and, and helps us scale security, but at the same time introduces new vulnerabilities as well. And I think that's an important point to, to, to think about. But let, 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 let me use the SolWinds um, hack as an, actually an example to, to answer the specific question that was posed to us. I think that SolarWinds is a great example of deterrence. The fact that the adversaries had access to tens of thousands, we know at least 18,000, a thousand, probably way more cu uh, customers, might, victims, they had access to them and they did not destroy them, which they clearly could have easily done by deploying a wiper malware like NotPetya or Olympic Destroyer, but they limited their operations to only a few hundred at most victims, um, shut down their access completely in the rest of the environments, and only uh, leverage it for espionage is an example that deterrence works, that we actually did not have them take down our entire economy and most of our government down, uh, which they clearly had the capacity to do with the access um, that they had just through SolarWinds attack vector alone, and we now know there are others as well, but they didn't do that, and that's because they fear our response, not our response in cyber, but clearly our kinetic response and, and, and various other ways in which we can hit back and really inflict massive costs. So we can do deterrence in cyber, in cyber, not through cyber means, but through the use of all um, uh, powers in, 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 in our national security apparatus, uh, military and otherwise. So that's how we win these wars. Great, thank you. Um, uh, along those lines, uh, winning wars, uh, so we've gotten a few questions about describing the limitations of cyber offense. Um, are there any? Should there be a Geneva Convention for cyber warfare? Taylor, Dimitri, to start. Uh, well, look, I, yeah, I mean, look, there, there's there's no question that we might want to get to the point where where we decide that certain things are off limits, certain things cause sig such significant damage, as we learned in World War II uh, with the firebombing of Dresden, that we want to take it off the table. We're nowhere near there yet today, because of the precise reason that Dimitri explained. Cyber offense to the limited extent where an offense capabilities generally to the limit that we're practicing them in cyberspace, right, have actually worked. We've deterred the massive scale attacks on civilian infrastructure. We're not seeing power grids go down. We're not seeing massive destruction of those things over a long period, right? Have we seen those episodically in specific cases? Sure. But have we seen mass attacks? No. And why? And to the extent they have done it, they've done it in places where they know they're not going to get a punch back, right? They did it to Ukraine. They did it to Georgia. People that didn't have the capacity to punch back in a way that would have been effective. They haven't done it to us, not Iran, not North Korea, not China, not Russia. They all the capacity we know because the DNI told us that back in 2019 when he last testified before the intelligence committees, but they haven't because they have been deterred. The real point is though, we simply have not extended that deterrence to the other stuff that's really troubling us, like the economic espionage and the like. In fact, we've relied on a primarily defensive mentality to stop it and say, we'll just build higher walls. Here's the thing, when it comes down to high walls, high walls are great, but they don't work to stop a war. What stops a war is knowing that you're gonna get hit back even worse and you're gonna lose the war. And you can't lose a war with, uh, if you're only on, the, you can't win the war and cause your side to lose the war if you're only on the defense. Karen, I believe you've got a response to that. Yeah, I mean, 
I just think there's a there's a breathtaking argument being attributed to Heather and me that we have never made. So both Dimitri and Jamil, particularly Dimitri and I, have basically said solar wind shows deterrence worked because Russia could have blown up power stations or uh, disrupted the treasury or, you know, did all sorts of nefarious things. But we deterred them. Well, the, the US and the allies deterred them because they've got armies, navies, air forces, military capabilities. It's nothing to do with cyber offense. And I don't think you heard Heather and I argue for unilateral disarmament of all military and security capabilities. Why did Russia not exploit this? There are all sorts of reasons. And as we well know, there are all sorts of reasons why they may just want the intelligence advantage that an operation like SolarWinds has, has given them. But why on earth would Russia or China or Iran or North Korea or anybody inflict damage on the US or allies in cyberspace that they're not prepared to do physically because the response is the same? What Heather and I are talking about is, is the answer to that weaponizing and tooling up in cyberspace? Because there are real risks to doing that because there's no way of doing that that doesn't weaken the security of the consumer technology that we're using right now and that we'll use as soon as this call is over. That's what we're talking about. Somewhere along the same lines, we've gotten questions. Um, are the offensive team? Oh, sorry. Uh, are the offensive 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 team aware of offensive cyber tools that don't fall into the enemy hands once they've been used? Uh, haven't Stuxnet and others shown great te- techniques that, when first used, immediately provided great tools to others to use offensively against us and, pretend- and potentially less ethically? I mean, I'll take that one. I actually did a debate in 2011 um, on this very point uh, with Ralph Langer, one of the experts in ICS security, where he took the position that now that Stuxnet was out, and it was literally about a year from uh, the discovery of of that malware, that we would see factories go down, electric power plants, because everyone had the blueprint of how to attack ICS. And now everyone from nation states to cyber criminals would be doing that nonstop. We're 10 years after that debate, I think um, me taking the opposite position uh, has proven uh, to be the correct position historically, that these attacks are much harder to copy. Yes, you can copy individual exploits. Yes, you can understand TTPs and adopt them. But just because you have seen a sophisticated piece of malware like Stuxnet that was very targeted, a very specific piece of critical infrastructure in a very specific configuration with very specific hardware, does not mean that you can generalize that attack tool to any other piece of uh, critical infrastructure out there. So the, this argument about proliferation of cyber weapons, I think is quite misguided. Exploits are easy to proliferate. Um, cyber weapons, particularly those that are tailored to particular targets are, are actually much, much harder. Okay, uh, for the defense side, uh, we've gotten a few questions. What does more defense look like? From my perspective, more defense is about the fundamentals. Now, we've been dealing with computing for a very long time. There are papers written in the 70s that describe all of the vulnerabilities that we have uncovered over the last uh, 30, 40 years. Really, what we have to get down to is the fundamentals. What are the fundamental root flaws in our systems? Let's just take passwords. Everybody understands how they work. Passwords on computers were introduced in the 1960s. And immediately they realized it was a bad idea because people wrote them on post-it notes and put them under keyboards. We've been trying to get rid of passwords for a very long time. And I think we've finally got some solutions on the table that can do that. We have technology solutions through organizations such as the FIDO Alliance 
which can make passwords irrelevant. How many of you are, you know, when you're not wearing a mask, are using facial recognition to get access to your phone or to do payment transactions? You're not having to remember long, complicated passwords. We need to take these solutions, which we have found, and get them more ubiquitous in the environment. Um, I think uh, we wrote a blog post uh, just last week talking about how we need to do application sandboxing, which would help with things like solar winds, because you could put this code that you can't verify in a sandbox. And even if somebody backdoored it, it would have a containment component to it. So we've got these ideas. The problem is getting them out. And um, if you have an Android phone, for example, we've given you application sandboxing. You have a two-factor token in your phone, right? So it's going to take time, right? How long do we keep these computers? But I think that um, over time, as we see this roadmap progressing, we're going to see the defense get much, much better. And actually, that's a more effective way to make these attacks expensive. If I can just respond quickly um, uh, to two, two of Heather's points. One, um, that we're still using passwords. Well, guess what? We now have technologies to not use passwords. One of them is something called SAML um, to, to do automatic authentication to systems like cloud systems. And guess what the SolarWinds attackers exploited? SAML authentications by stealing certificates and generating their own tokens to authenticate to cloud providers and stealing a whole slew of emails from Office 365 and other um, cloud systems. So let's not kid ourselves that as we move from one technology to the other, yes, we improve security, but we do not make it impossible for attackers to launch their operations. Uh, sandboxing, a great technology that makes attacks harder. Um, uh, Heather and her team at Google implemented sandboxing in Chrome browser um, a number of years ago, made the browser safer. It did not eliminate attacks on Chrome browser. Every single year we're seeing uh, public disclosures of vulnerabilities of how to evade sandboxing in Chrome and many other applications. We're seeing real targets uh, being compromised through that. So yes, we're raising the bar, but offense is evolving even faster. So the idea that we're just going to out-innovate and build the perfect security, that has never existed in history. And in fact, as these systems are getting more and more complex, both from the hardware perspective and the software perspective, uh, we're introducing new classes of vulnerabilities like Melter and uh, um, uh, 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 the, 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 um, the hardware vulnerabilities on the processors that I'm uh, blanking on at the moment, the Rowhammer vulnerability, which part of um, Heather's team at Google discovered, uh, where if you hammer a certain memory location enough times, you will actually get bit flips in other surrounding locations and you can get privilege escalation. All those sorts of attacks that we haven't even conceived of when we design these systems and as they're getting more and more complex, we introduce new potential classes of vulnerabilities um, are making us uh, actually just as insecure as we've been in the past. Jessica, I need 20 seconds on the technical details of that reply. You can have First it. Off, SAML tokens are just passwords. They're strings stored on a computer. We've been trying to use them for 20 years. So I put them in that category. We have methods. You don't have to use SAML. Secondly, the Chrome Sandbox. Before the Chrome Sandbox, an exploit on the market for a browser vulnerability was a few thousand dollars. Today, to get out of the Chrome Sandbox, you need not only like a render exploit, but a sandbox exploit for Windows. It's now hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's what we pay out in our vulnerability rewards program. So we've made it expensive. Don't be defeatist, Dimitri. <laughs> so I think we're probably on our last question, but I think it's an interesting one. Breach after breach or trace to human error. How does either side account for the carbon-based units in the equation? 
How can the defense get around that? How can the offense mitigate bad decisions by cyber, by a human? So I don't know who wants to start. We got, we got, I think probably one minute per side. Do you want to start? I, I think maybe 10 seconds. I think the user is really important, but I, you know, I'll, I'll cite facial recognition again. Typing in your pin is hard. People can see you typing in your pin. Um, facial recognition has enabled almost everyone with an enabled phone to turn the, the lock screen on. Once upon a time, nobody turned the lock screen on on their phone. So I think it's a really great example of like when we put good technology in front of users, they're going to make the right choices and we don't have to force them to make bad trade-offs. And if I can just do two finger, you know, I'm not arguing against anything that Heather has said, God bless her and her team for all the work that she has done and many others to make it more uh, cost um, uh, to impose costs on the defensive side. We're not arguing against that. We should be doing more of that. We just believe that it's impractical um, to build perfect security and the entire history of the cyber domain tells us that and there are two ways to raise the cost one is on defense let's keep doing that and let's do more of it but one is also on offense let's not ignore that powerful lever great okay so we are now into our closing arguments so we are going to kick it off with Kieran arguing for the motion and cyber defense well, thanks very much. And thanks to so many people for joining. It's been fun to watch old friends typing in the chat. Hello, Admiral Filipowski and uh, Dimitri and I were speculating on who the swing voters might be. I don't know if you count as one of them. Um, but I think no, it's been a, it's been a really good enlightening discussion. I think one of the things, given that um, uh, Jamil as ever will have the last word genuinely from the point, I, I would love to know what sort of scenarios they're envisaging for cyber offense, cyber offense. I really do mean that because I as you know, I take the view that this imposing costs phrase has become what I would call, given where I sit, the Brexit means Brexit of the cyber domain. It's a really catchy, useful political slogan. It's always trotted out whenever there's a new cybersecurity strategy or wherever there's a major breach. But I mean, we've been, as Chris Painter calls it gloriously, cyber rattling for years on this. And I, I still don't know. I still honestly don't know what sort of use we have for cyber offense in terms of imposing these costs. And it does come with risks. Um, I don't really agree with um, Dimitri's um, point saying that just because, you know, Stuxnet was tailored and so forth, that that means that proliferation uh, isn't an issue or that accidental attacks that go beyond the intent of the attacker go wrong. Are we really so good that we will never do a not pete? Do we know that? And what would the vote be like in the aftermath of a Western um, self-inflicted uh, damage? What would the vote be like if there was yet another catastrophic breach of Western cyber capabilities that weaponized um, uh, cyberspace. So I think there are, it's not just a question of um, defensive uh, primacy. It's not just a question of the ineffectiveness of cyber offense as a tool of, of, of cyber defense. There are some risks to tooling up and weaponizing the internet. And I think there, that's because of two fundamental imbalances that are linked. The first fundamental imbalance is that in our types of societies, we're freer, we're more open, we're based on the rule of law, and we're more digitized. We are more sophisticated by and large. So, you know, um, that sort of, it's not so much escalation because that implies activity, but that sort of, you know, arms race doesn't do us any favours at all. I remember when um, a former senior British official you know, briefed the media that the, the UK has done some cyber attacks on Putin's inner circle. Someone responded, why didn't you just freeze all the assets of his acolytes in London? That would have actually hurt them. Good point. Um, so there is that imbalance in terms of, um, you know, um, cyber, uh, a cyber arms race does us uh, no um, uh, uh, favours. 
Uh, and then the other point is that, as someone put in the chat in a question that didn't get taken, we have a fundamentally insecure set of technologies, but we can get after that. We can improve this. This is one of the greatest human inventions of all time. It's not a battlefield. It's not a plaything. It's not a place for sporting analogies. It's a place for our economies and societies to live and work as safely as possible. I know you haven't said it tonight, Dimitri, but you've been quoted many times before saying we don't have a cyber problem. We have a you know, problem with specific actors. We have a problem with unknown number of actors, as Heather said, both now and in the future. You know, if we manage to make some accommodation with Russia or China, unlikely that may seem there'll be somebody else. We've got to improve the security of the digital environment. So my final, two final pleas. Uh, one, uh, don't be beguiled by the argument that if Russia starts killing civilians in cyberspace or China starts killing civilians in cyberspace, that Heather and I are saying there should be no response. That, that's absolute. We're not advocating the total surrender of national security capabilities. We are saying the future of prosperity and security of societies lies in focusing on better securing technology. So that's why we believe the best form of defense in the cyber domain is defense. Thanks. Thank you. And then lastly, of course, we've got Jamil Jaffer to round out the opposition to the motion in support of cyber offense. So look, thanks to everybody for participating in this, what I think has been a great conversation and a great debate. And it is great to see a lot of folks here, almost 300, over 300 during the course of the debate. Um, look, if you're going to vote for Kieran and Heather, you have to believe that cyberspace is fundamentally different than the rest of, of the rest of the world, the rest of human history that it's unique. We, Heather started with George Washington said, you know what? George Washington thought about, the, thought about war like this and he had specific land he could hold and, and cyberspace is totally different. So if you believe that, if you believe that cyberspace is fundamentally different and special and unique, then maybe Heather and Karen are right. I don't, Dimitri, I don't believe that. Dimitri and I believe that cyberspace is just like real space, that you fight battles, you have disagreements and, and, offense is what prevents other people from getting in your face. It's not defense. Defense has never stopped anybody from engaging in an offensive activity. Defense has never stopped anybody from going aggressive against somebody else. What has stopped them from doing it is the fear that they will get hit back. And that's what Dimitri and I are arguing for. We're not saying it's not important to have a good defense. It is. What is more important, though, is the other side knowing that, A, you can respond, what it'll take for you to respond, what your response will be, and that everyone else will see it. That will not only deter them from acting, it will deter other people from acting. And when you raise costs, them, not just by raising your walls and making the defenses higher, but you raise costs for them while they're acting in the course of the action, that's how you win a war. It's how you win American football. It's how you win soccer. And it's how you'll win the cyber, the cyber game. And the fact of the matter is, we've been doing the Kieran-Heather dance for 30 years. It hasn't worked. Look at the scoreboard. We're losing. If you want to win, the best cyber defense is a good cyber offense. All right. Didn't even take up all of this time. I do want to point out, apparently there is a hot debate on Twitter. We've been live tweeting some of this. And so when you guys step away, you're paying so much attention. Do check out your Twitter profiles, especially Jamil and Dimitri. I guess you're getting a little roasted online. Um, so that should be fun. Um, but now, thank you for everyone that stayed tuned. We are on to our final vote. Let's see how it compares to the first one. A poll should pop up on your screen to vote on the motion. See, there it is. We can't vote, so we can't change it. Now, you, now, now you no, guys are No mail-in ballots accepted, right? <laughs> and remember, for us to win, the vote just has to move our direction. <laughs>
Oh, yeah, we've now lowered the bar of winning. Okay. <laughs> Where's Krebs when you need him? <laughs> well, while we're waiting, look, if you guys yeah. are interested in these kind of conversations, these kind of debates, right, please check out Kieran and Heather and Dimitri <laughs> and me. We're all online. We're all on Twitter. Check us out. Check our website Ooh. down somewhere. <laughs> He's going to take that movement. That's a landslide in this country. And by the way, I, I, don't know about these, I don't know about these fake votes, these electors. I don't know what's going on here. I, 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 I want the, where's the vice president? Where's the vice president? <laughs> that was amazing. I'm, I'm going to go by the Twitter vote that Jessica said. Yeah, we are actually, we're actually going to put a vote up on Twitter because we've got so many comments. So we'll see what that math says. Um, but Jamil's point, we are hoping to do more of this and other programs of Silverado and folks in the future. Um, there's also going to be a short survey when you leave this to just comment on this debate, what you want to hear, what you liked, all that stuff. So please take time to do that. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was super fun on our end. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. 